Happy Hour with Julie and Liz. So usually Liz and I open up our happy hour trying to be happy or snarky or finding something sarcastic to say, which actually would be a good tribute to the late Rush Limbaugh who passed away this week, as our listener already knows. Um, And we'll talk about him a little bit later in the show. Um, But we want to really just get right down to business today because there's so much going on and we have a special guest, our friend Ben Weingarten from The Federalist. We are going to talk about so many issues happening um, that's happening now, uh, especially transpired this week. So, Ben, welcome. Thanks so much for having me. And in the spirit of Rush, I think we need to just be happy warriors during this hour while the country is collapsing around us. Yeah. <laughs> Yay, team. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I like that. That was good, Ben. That 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 took us like from a zero dark 30 to like a two or something. So, um, so Liz, why don't you introduce Ben's piece today? Uh, and we can just get started with really what's an alarming trajectory that's happening in the Biden administration, justice department, and really every agency that they have control of, uh, under the guise of domestic terrorism. Well, I saw Ben's piece, it's at The Federalist, and it's titled, Biden's Domestic War on Terrorism May Seek to Criminalize Political Dissent. So I thought it would be a good idea to spend the hour talking to Ben about this issue that's going to affect all of us, because in Ben's piece, he lays out the case that the, I almost said Obama administration, but I mean, come on. It's the the Obama 2.0 administration. A lot of familiar faces are back in in Washington, D.C. and the agencies that the Biden administration is using the power of government and our apparatuses, apparata, I don't know, uh, to basically punish the political opposition by characterizing them as terrorists. And I'm sure a lot of people were wondering when they're watching the media freak out of violent insurrection. Um, we've got troops in D.C. They're not leaving anytime soon. We're hearing in the impeachment trial all sorts of over-the-top um, discussions or descriptions of the terrorism going on. And you know, if we're paying close attention, it just doesn't seem to match what we do know, in fact. And the reason for that is they are setting the foundation to use our government agencies, a la the Patriot Act, like happened after 9-11, to suppress their political opposition. So, Ben, um, what, what made you put this down on paper? What made you bring it all together? Just a concern? of the climate? Well, first of all, that was a really eloquent summary of it because it is hard to kind of capture all of the different nefarious elements of this. But really, just like I think that the erosion of vote integrity in this country is sort of the whole ball game, and of course the first bill that the House will put forth, H.R. 1, as they did in the prior Congress, is essentially to enshrine the very erosion of vote integrity that we saw in the 2020 elections and federalize our elections. And obviously, if you control elections and you create the conditions for mass fraud or the appearance of it and clear opportunity for corruption and the like, then you're going to lose elections in perpetuity because this is what Democrats do. They dominate when it comes to machine politics like that, as we saw in the presidential race and, and beyond. In this case, I think this is also in part the whole ball game in the potential weaponization of all of the government's apparatuses under the guise of national security against us hand in hand as well with big tech. And there's sort of a running theme here that I think is even broader than this coming domestic war on wrong think is one of the ways that I've described it. And that's concentrated public power and private power in the ruling class, working hand in hand to crush dissenters. I think that's the running theme that we see 
throughout the vast thicket of all of these disastrous policies that are coming. And really, it's sort of the meta narrative of the four years of resistance against Trump. Of course, you know, there's the meme about they're not really going after Trump. They're going after us. And that's absolutely true. He's just a proxy for the millions of people that are the primary stumbling block to ruling class dominance over every aspect of our society. The reason that I pinpointed this issue of the coming war on what the administration calls domestic violent extremism is that, I one, I see this emerging information operation playing out where you have pundits and former national security and intelligence officials going on TV and talking about deprogramming wrong thinkers, deplorables essentially, even though they don't use that term. Um, debathification, and then, of course, in the case of Nicole Wallace, even droning Americans. You see the national security and intelligence officials, former ones, talking. And, and this is just insane to me that they're using this rhetoric, and that's why I felt it needed to be called out and called as such, talking about the fact, essentially comparing Americans to al-Qaeda, saying that they're seeing the makings of an insurgency in this country, and thus there needs to be a counterinsurgency and, and a war on terror, on our own people, which they never justify with an actual threat. You know, there's no evidence out there. They will cite a, a, several, you know, left-wing reports, which when then you you delve down into the details of all the cases that they put forth, usually fall apart. Oftentimes it's leftists or random guy or the like. Their cases fall apart when you actually look at the purported empirical evidence. There's nothing to suggest that, as Joe Biden said, in that CNN town hall that essentially white supremacist extremists pose the greatest threat to the U.S. homeland of anyone. It's just absolutely asinine. And of course, in those reports, they always take out the 9-11 attack. Like you have to adjust the numbers for the greatest attack on American soil by jihadists, the very people who they always serve as apologists for, to make their logic work. But even more so disturbing than the rhetoric is the actual policy. And my focus in particular on the Biden administration's policy associated with this comes from some remarks that White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki delivered that I don't think got the attention that they deserved. And I lay that out in the article, kind of this three-part process that the administration is going to go through in connection with, quote-unquote, combating domestic violent extremism, which they never define who those purported extremists are, which is why I assume it's probably all of us and all of the listeners and tens of millions of other wrong thinkers in this country. In her three-part equation, she says that the FBI and the Department of Homeland Security are going to do a threat assessment on domestic violent extremists. She says the National Security Council is then going to build its own capabilities. So this is the premier White House office for coordinating all of the elements of national power, National Security Council, which was maybe the most powerful national security apparatus under the Obama administration. And I think that's being reprised under Biden. They are going to convene this review and then essentially work with all the other agencies to coordinate their response to combating domestic violent extremism. And one of the people who's responsible for scoping out this effort is, of course, a former Obama counterterrorism official in the National Security Council who has talked about the need for government for big tech to police their platforms, not just for essentially incitement to violence, but ideologies that could lead to it. And then he says, well, and this is in testimony that he delivered in 2019. His name is Joshua Geltzer. It's all out there in the public sphere. Then he says, but we need to be sure that we're not essentially threatening protected political advocacy. And you cannot square <laughs> those statements. And Saki and other administration officials have talked about, of course, the need for big tech literally to, to go after, quote unquote, hate speech, which there is no such constitutional concept of hate speech. Go to the impeachment where incitement to violence is the core of the article of impeachment against the president. What they're trying to do is use under the guise of national security. They are trying to st silence and stifle all of us using the full force of the federal government. And the proof is in the pudding of what I mentioned regarding Jen Psaki's remarks about the National Security Council coordinating these processes in the bureaucracy to to use the same tools potentially as have been used against terrorists on American citizens. And so I see this all as one consistent information operation from the exploitation of the Capitol riots to the 60 day stand down 
that the Secretary of Defense has called for over extremism in the military to the war footing that exists on Capitol Hill with the National Guardsmen, many of whom were vetted prior to Inauguration Day, and all of these cries of hysteria over threats that have never seemed to materialize are all geared towards terrifying people into accepting what I believe is going to be this coming domestic war on violent extremism in which the administration has talked about, yet no one else is really talking about it. It seems like that's a pretty darn important story, and our elected representatives need to be out in front of it because otherwise we are going to be targeted. There's no question about it, and our our most cherished liberties will be completely overrun, again, under the guise of national security by people who, by the way, are empowering all of our worst adversaries at the same time. Yeah, I think it's um, interesting or it's notable for people like for this cognitive dissonance where we just had a summer full of legitimate violent extremists um and not much happened at the federal level for that and so now biden's in office and we're hearing talk about violent extremists except it's not the people that were you know throwing explosives hurting police officers, blinding police officers, murders, burning down cities. Um, yeah, it's um, it's uh, that's probably not the direction the Biden administration is going to go with their new plan. And I think we saw some of this with the way that the prosecutions are happening with the riot on on January 6th. When you go through all of the charging documents and you read, nobody's really charged with anything serious they're getting these federal charges for like trespassing or what are some of the other charges julie they're not like you know what we traditionally consider dangerous no i mean most of them are misdemeanors they're somehow related to a trespassing charge there's a lot of disorderly conduct charges they've They've arrested over 200 people so far. And Ben, to your point, which is astonishing, and this ties into what you're saying, writing about, um, at least two dozen of these perpetrators are being held in jail upon arrest without bond. They're being denied any opportunity to leave as their trial you know, continues. And even if a local judge releases them on bond or their own recognizance, these federal judges step in in Washington, D.C., because this entire investigation is being run through Washington, D.C., which is really bad news for all of these defendants. Um, The federal judge will overturn what the local judge, how the local judge handled it. And in some cases, like the Cowboys for Trump guy who was denied bail, finally released, charged with one misdemeanor. He never even went in the Capitol. The judges are excoriating these defendants for not believing that Joe Biden legitimately won the presidency. I mean, they are the FBI agents are actually asking them, do you believe that Joe Biden won the presidency? And this Cooey Griffin, the Cowboys for Trump guy, said, no, I don't. Then the judge said he was a flight risk because he doesn't believe in American democracy. I mean, this is the kind of garbage that's coming out, not just out of DOJ and prosecutors, but from the bench. This is is exactly what this is going to be a lot more of this, actually. Go go on, Ben. Yeah, no, I I was just going to make two two quick points. I mean, first of all. This is why I I wrote at the American mind about what I felt was maybe the Trump administration's greatest achievement on the domestic side, which was exposing the rot and corruption and hyper politicization and weaponization of all of our institutions. The emperor has no clothes. It's been proven now. It's very clear that standards of justice and impartiality and independence are just completely out the window, which means you don't really have justice if there's only a double standard of justice. With respect to the way that the federal government has sprung into action with these investigations and is going about them in a beyond vigorous fashion, compare that to, like you mentioned, Liz, what transpired this summer where you had infinitely more destruction and damage, both physically in terms of property and then in dollar value, and then, of course, in debts and casualties to police officers and innocent bystanders as well while we were all locked down at home and they were out in the streets 
marauding. Uh, the contrast couldn't be clearer. And the tell that those domestic violent extremists, to use the left's language, which I don't like to do, but to, to call them domestic violent extremists, those ones are never referenced by the Biden administration, of course. And in fact, in the preface, uh, the kind of the remarks leading into when Jen Psaki was talking about this three part combating domestic violent extremism effort, she said essentially that it was spurred in large part, or at least that the Capitol riots reflected the need for it. She didn't say that it was the 1619 riots and the Capitol riot. She wouldn't even even try to create any moral equivalency, which still wouldn't wouldn't exist. But the tell and what's very clear is that this is about wrong thinkers that the administration doesn't like. And it's a very scary thing when the, the whole power of the federal government and its national security apparatuses and beyond are turned specifically on people for their political views. And the administration has not disproven that case, but no one's even asking them about it. So that one of the reasons I wrote this piece was simply to raise a hand and say, is anyone going to do anything about this? Is there going to be any oversight? Will any pertinent questions be asked of the administration? Obviously not. But when it comes to oversight, at the very least, from Congress, there better be questions of the individuals who are preparing the groundwork for whatever is to come, because this is about all of our liberties at the end of the day. And if it's about chilling and stifling the First Amendment and then actually pursuing people using the force of law, we're entering a very scary and dark place. Is there any elected official that you know of that has come out on against this or made some raised some questions or um i don't know what how much power they have now um in even in the senate because it's 50 50 but is there anybody out there asking questions um for clarification one of the things that's so important you point out in your piece is that we're using words that have no definition you know that just to leave it as broad as possible so that they can decide whether someone fits in that category. And, and if they think that, if you think that Joe Biden didn't win the election, then you're a terrorist, right? I mean, that's, that's, that's how they're playing fast and loose to kind of cast a wide net. Um, yeah. Go on. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Yeah, no, no, I, I, I don't know who came up with the, the phrase or sort of the meme at this point about that we're all living on the college campus now and that that's our world. And it, and it only makes sense because the people at the commanding heights of society all come from essentially the same schools and are taught the same things and are assimilated into the same progressive globalist kind of mindset. But it, the, the, the point about language is really critical. Washington, at least historically, has been pretty much all lawyers among our representatives and continues to be mainly lawyers. And yet there is no precision whatsoever in the language about this, which leads you to believe that it could be used by the widest possible definition. And I go back to the college point to, to make the point that we are now living in a world and it started, of course, in legal scholarship and then has percolated down to the rest of society where speech is treated as violence, speech that doesn't conform to the official narrative is treated as violence and actual violence is considered is called mostly peaceful or is considered justifiable in response to it. We also operate in a world now, and this really started to accelerate, I think, during the summer of 2020, when the anti-racism, white fragility sort of racket started to reach its apex, where America was described as consisting of two camps. You're either anti-racist, i.e. leftist, or you're not, you're a racist, you're bigoted. And, and those racist and bigoted views, of course, are treated as definitionally violent. And so thus, of course, you can execute a war on terror on those people. That's the sort of crazy, sophistic milieu in which all of these efforts arise. And the Biden administration is clearly in hock to it, because if you look at their executive orders, for example, where, of course, they abolished the 1776 commission, one of the first things they must do. And Biden and his rhetoric has has harkened back to our sins from 400 years ago. So clearly he's playing to the 1619 project crowd. But also there's an emphasis in imposing in every part of the federal government equity over equality. And that that is the tell that tells you exactly 
that the administration subscribes to, at least in its rhetoric, and I'm sure ultimately in policy, because it's in the executive order or the memorandum, they want to put forth this worldview, which comes from the critical theorists, the essentially cultural Marxists, and of course, the anti-racist crew. So we're in very dangerous territory because we don't get a definition of the language, but if we assume that it defaults to the left's definition, it can be as wide, as arbitrary, and, and c- encompass as many Americans as they deem a threat to their power. Well, also, we've, words that we use colloquially or that we all understand um, in a, our common uses, phrases, words like white supremacists, right? Like, Everyone here, you know, you, Julie, me, we're we're not white supremacists. We're against white supremacy. But white supremacy is a new definition now. You know, it's not it's not what people traditionally understand it to mean. And so when they hear it and people are not inside the political propaganda machine and they don't know, all they hear is, oh, they're against white supremacy. Oh, yeah, I'm against that. They have no idea that white supremacy doesn't mean it anymore. It doesn't mean what they think it means. Um, That little trick, that sleight of hand by redefining these words and moving subtly to anti-race. What is it like? I can't even keep straight with the jargon Um, from being like against racism. Now, anti-racism is different and equality versus equity. People think equity. Oh, it's equality. No, that's not what it is. It's a clever game. And the general public is not aware of these, this word polka going on. And so I think instinctually they support people who support these ideas because they, they, they really don't understand what is being meant and spoken about when, when people are on this platform. Julie, what are you, where are you on this? Well, I, I ask the question that I always ask and I'll ask, Ben, where the hell are the Republicans in Washington speaking out? Are are they completely unaware? They can't be unaware of what's happening. I have not heard one senator, really, even a Republican congressman, even the ones we could usually rely on for backup. I haven't heard them say anything, uh, exposing anything that the Biden administration is trying to do in terms of these investigations and political persecutions. Have you? Yeah. And to go back to to Liz's question, because I didn't answer it before, um, Josh Hawley did reference this briefly recently on on with Tucker Carlson. And and I suspect that Ted Cruz's camp as well will ultimately address this. But, you know, we're talking a couple out of 100. And, 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 And the interesting thing is that chasm between where Republicans are and where their purported representatives are is just so vast. And the only thing that's going to bridge it ultimately is for people to lose their jobs. I I think that it's readily apparent that you need mass primarying of our purported representatives for there to be any change. It seems to me very clear that many Republicans are either, to be frank, cowardly on certain issues or in tow to the donor class and believe that they can continue to repeat the same cliches every single election cycle and act like conservatives in the year running up to elections and then govern like essentially progressive lights or faux conservatives when they're in office. So the only way that they will learn ultimately is through the threat to their power of being primaried and losing their jobs. I I think it's very clear. And clearly that lesson has not been learned. But I, I, I go to sort of Cruz and Hawley in part because they've been targeted probably the most of any of the senators with respect to the Capitol riots. And so clearly they're perceived as probably the ones most likely to carry the Trump mantle or receive the support of the tens of millions of Trump voters. And so that's obviously a threat to the ruling class and they must be attacked. I, I, I do think, though, that there must be an outcry about this, because if, if there isn't an outcry among any of these representatives, then it shows clearly they just don't understand the stakes. And, you know, some of them got it, I think, when it came to Kavanaugh, even though Kavanaugh was sort of a bushy and a member of the establishment in terms of pedigree, at least in good standing. So, of course, they felt like one of their own was threatened. That's me editorializing. That's my perception of it. But 
the whole Trump phenomenon, if you didn't realize it in 2016 and you didn't realize it in 2020, you'll never realize it, is that there is this force that really wants to purge us from public life. And this is about survival, ultimately. And if you don't understand those stakes, then you don't really have a business being a representative because your constituents are being assaulted. And ultimately, you're going to lose your job. Or do you want to be a member of a permanent minority with no actual power who gets to go to cocktail parties and glad hand with these leftists who ultimately want to destroy your constituents and are going to leave the country in a terrible place? You would think at least from their own self-interest, just in terms of their families and what country they want their families to grow up in, they would see the potential danger that's transpiring here. Unfortunately, I think a decent percentage of them are really on the other side of this, and they really do think that there is this problem that the left has ginned up effectively of tens of millions of Americans. They really loathe their own constituents, I think, is what it comes down to, in large part. Not all of them, but a decent percentage of them, certainly. Well, we're see- certainly seeing that as they, they decide to to not run for re-election because they realize they can't get re-elected, like the Burrs, the Toomeys. Um, Portman. Yeah. Yep. They're all, like, hitting a jack button, and it's because they probably realize that they cannot get re-elected, but they don't either, they don't have the stones to put their foot down and fight for the people who put them into office. So I don't know why more people aren't, more elected officials aren't, saying something or um, doing something or calling more attention to this, because how do they think they're going to get put back, voted into office? I think they're, I think they're afraid. I think they're cowards. I think they're so afraid that this apparatus, which a part of me doesn't blame them is going to turn on them. Like they turned it on Trump and they turned it on, you know, even people like Mike Flynn or people who couldn't fight back like Carter Page. I mean, no one has been immune to use weaponizing this system against their political enemies. I I think just a lot of them are just cowards. And that's why Trump, even though he made so many mistakes and missed so many opportunities to try to fight back even a little bit here, um, that's why Trump just enraged these people because he wouldn't back down really no matter how much they threw at him. And, and, and to, to that point, and I know there's probably mutual admiration here for all of us for him, but Devin Nunes as a member of the house who, you know, was serving in an oversight capacity and intelligence and then raised his hand and asked the questions that needed to be asked. It takes tremendous fortitude and courage to take on the very people who, as Chuck Schumer said, can get you six ways from Sunday. It's really a, a testament to the courage of the few in Washington who are willing to take on the administrative state and at the heart of the administrative state, the, the deep state that really ultimately runs things and is, is the perpetual government in practice. And, you know, look, I mean, Congress itself is sort of definitionally kabuki theater now because there isn't really legislating that's done. Pretty much everything goes to the bureaucracy and the courts. So, you know, what power do they really have? But on the other hand, at a time like this, you really can move mountains with oversight. If the American people knew that potentially the very powers, awesome powers that have been turned on terrorists could be turned on their neighbors I think that Americans would be terrified about it. And again, from purely political self-interest perspective, it would be in the self-interest of politicians to want to ask these questions about it because they'll be rewarded by their constituents for defending them. So I I look at this from sort of the rational perspective of what can you how do you move politicians who might not be ideologically aligned at their core? And I think it has to be that they face the threat of being thrown out of power and losing their prestige. It's the only way. I think you I we've done this many times, but I think it's worth the further you get away from what Devin Nunes did, the more astonishing it is and commendable and heroic how he handled really by himself at that point, because none of us had any idea. You know, we have the benefit of hindsight now of now all of these, as you said, Ben, they've all been exposed. The emperor has no clothes, but he knew it way ahead of every everyone else he had no backup really except the president but he was occupied with the Mueller probe and everything else that was happening but what he did how he stood firm how he refused to back down his family was attacked his wife his grandmother I mean it was sick what they did to him 
And it's just a shame we can't replicate that guy like, uh, you know, a hundred thousand times, <laughs> put him everywhere. But um, yeah, I mean, so I think he too is a cautionary tale and why so many of these congressmen are, they don't want that happening to them. Yeah, they don't want to upset the the gravy train that awaits them when they leave office. They mm-hmm. don't want to stick their necks out. You know, it, it, they're sort of. It, it, the people who are the most ideological and deeply devoted to their causes and outspoken about it are the ones that are the least likely to rise to the top. And it's a shame that our system is incentivized that way. But unfortunately, it's the people who will compromise, who will, you know, in a sense, deceive, um, who are the ones that ultimately rise. And it's not just in government. I mean, it's throughout our society, really, in a lot of ways, that the people who play politics rise and the people who actually want to expose the corruption and the wrongdoing that often gets crushed and the people that rise to the top claim to be the ones crusading. But in reality, it's the p- few people like the Devin Nunes's or the president and some other courageous people in the bureaucracy as well. But it's a- against a just massive onslaught that cuts across party lines because ultimately it's about being a part of the establishment. It's about being part of the ruling class and it totally transcends whatever the pro- outspoken or public political views are of a lot of these figures. It's a shame. And I guess, you know, the one silver lining, again, I would say is that it's all been exposed and Americans are more awake to it and aware of it than they've ever been. And so thank God for the efforts of the few who have seen their, their lives, their livelihoods, their families threatened and imperiled as a consequence of this. But the benefit is it's exposed to all of us the, the nature of this Leviathan that needs to be taken on. And and another positive, I guess, and I, I usually take a pretty pessimistic view of these things. I feel that we're fighting a very uphill battle, but it has to be fought on our consciences is still half the country is reasonable and has their heads on straight in spite of this massive onslaught, in spite of constant propaganda, in spite of the fact that big tech and woke capital and of course, Congress and the administrative state and pop culture and beyond are all propagating one uniform message and trying to cram it down our throats. Still, half the country gets it, at least at their right. core. And so there's right. something yeah, there's something that's somewhat reassuring about that, even though I suspect we're going to face really tough times over the next four years. And if Kamala gets her way under 10 years of Kamala Harris rule, too. Oh, bite your tongue. Well, you know it. <laughs> Whoever, <laughs> let's say whatever. Whoever's on the other end of the earpiece that's in Biden's ear, um, we're going to have some more of that. So, Ben, let me ask you, what what degree did this coronavirus shit show, like, how, I consider that kind of like a beta test in a lot of ways for what is coming when yep. the left was kind of testing, like, what they could get away with how much you know how much they could do for the day that they seized power again do you do you agree i mean i see so many similarities um especially on the big tech front what do you think Yo, know, let me just say first that julie did just uh, exceptional work on this from the start in her skepticism and i was skeptical too and i, I wrote a little bit about it at the start um it's not my main focus but uh, you know she would really ask the the perp pertinent and prescient questions about it that no one else was asking. And obviously, if people are getting attacked for asking questions, they're probably on the right track. Uh, But it was very clear, you know, you looked at the purported models and what the inputs were for the models. And you think to yourself, this is nuts. Where are you coming up with this? And then how are you justifying these policies on the basis of it? And like, if you know that this demographic is, is the one that's acutely at risk, then why don't you do everything possible to protect that demographic and let everyone else live their lives? I mean, just basic kind of common sense things. Obviously, they use this and exploited it to maximum impact. And you really if you if you want to reduce it and I've done this myself a couple of times, this thought exercise, communist China's malign efforts, you can draw a straight line from that to President Trump losing. And it's in part because our response to it, of course, was to create this uh, crisis disaster scenario, which allowed them to foist this shoddy election upon the American public and obviously to use it as a cudgel against the president, too, of course. Uh, The thing that concerns me most about the coronavirus crisis and the response to it is not necessarily the tyranny of state and local authorities. And thank God the president didn't use 
federal authorities in a way that he could have because, of course, then the other side, even though the other side would do it anyway, at least he didn't set the precedent of then using uh, having a federal dominated response, even though Joe Biden will certainly try to do it right now. Thank God there was federalism, because that means that a state like Florida did not end up like a state like New York or New Jersey. But what concerns me the most about it is just how passive it seems the American public was in response to it. The fact that they were willing to listen to the quote unquote experts who really were like characters out of an Ayn Rand novel in reality, they proved it to be. Uh, who did not care about the science, who clearly cared about the politics and promoting themselves and their interests. Uh, the thing that's most demoralizing, again, is that while half the country has their heads on straight, still they allowed there to be this arbitrary and capricious suspension of our most basic liberties. Well, of course, again, certain groups that the progressives loved were allowed to go out in the streets. I'm, I'm, I'm speaking mainly of, you know, the BLM, Antifa and all of their supporters and aiders, the betters and neighbors. They were allowed to more than exercise their constitutionally protected rights while God-fearing Americans couldn't worship peacefully or, you know, attend to the funerals of their loved ones. So, you know, what what troubles me the most about it is, yes, obviously now the precedent has been set where under the guise of a public health emergency, life can be shut down and we can commit basically total suicide, self-righteous suicide, maybe they'd call it. And not just, you know, obviously economically, but the social disaster that this has been, you know, obviously the alcoholism and the family destruction and the kids losing out on school time and, and all the myriad knock on effects to it and suicides and the like. It, it, incalculable damage that was self-imposed, but that Americans took it and accepted it and believed the quote unquote experts without questioning them or without essentially seeking to subvert them or protest and fight them, that to me is the really disturbing thing, that we didn't really have the skepticism that we should have had of our purported leaders because they really deserve it. And as I said before, I'll go back to the emperor has no clothes. So why would you trust the emperor when they're t when they're telling you that you need to shut down your life and it just doesn't make any sense relative to what the science itself actually says? So, you know, the sort of other side of the coin in terms of where my pessimism is, is that millions of Americans were willing to go along with this and continue seemingly to be willing to go along with it. Well, you know, I think part of that, though, is that the average person does not think that these officials in in the government health agencies are political, right? They don't see them as politicians. Now, we know better, and certainly we certainly know better now, but at the time, you have these people, doctor this one, and they've been doing this, and AIDS research, and prestigiousness, and blah, 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 and, and scientists at different universities are coming out and saying this and saying two and a half million people are going to die, and ventilators. People believe that because they don't think that the public health sphere is a political sphere, and it is. Um, and I mean, I think a lot of people have have woken up now that they see it a little differently but in the beginning in a way i can't fault them for that because they're like oh my god this thing is going to kill everyone it's dangerous and rem remember there was this video on youtube of some guy and he was talking about how he handles his groceries and he's taking out each piece of bread and he's separating <laughs> it and he's like i leave my groceries in the garage for three days so the virus will be killed and it's like you know what what is happening here? But who do you trust on, on an issue that is specialized knowledge that the layman doesn't have? So I, in a way, I, I kind of understand that. The question is, how long was this ruse going to fly? Um, and, and my other point is, I look at the way that social media, um, which has become just a primary means of communication now um, among Americans, has decided what is the truth and then is censoring things that are not the truth. So if you say something like, I think masks don't work, your, your post is not going to see the light of day. Just like if you say, I don't, I, I think there was election fraud and mm -hmm. Joe Biden didn't win, your post isn't going to see the light of day. Now, if you thought that the Russians had stolen an election for Donald Trump, you were completely allowed to 
you know, say that often, all the time, constantly, and had the highest platform to do it. But I feel like that's the paradigm for go- going forward for people on social media. They're go because, and that you know, when I say social media, I mean big tech corporations in the, the corporate world. But people are now going to have to be careful what they say on these mediums if they're not, you know reflective of the current accepted truths that we are working working with i guess it's not a question i guess it's like a statement (laughs) i think though liz this is a good point and what ben said too is if there's any upside to this catastrophe and this is a catastrophe i think most people now recognize it even if they went along with it in the beginning that these lockdowns have catastrophic effects and will have lifelong impacts, especially on our children, um, is to expose, Liz, what you were just saying, is this highly partisan political, I used to call them scientific community, which along with our government agencies, as Ben was saying, also is exposed for not just their partisanship, but their incompetence. And they've always relied on this appeal to authority, which is how they've gotten away with this climate change BS for so long. Um, I don't know that that's going to work anymore that, you know, coming out, well, I'm an epidemiologist and I don't, I don't, I mean, I, I do think the only upside is that so much of what we've been told for so long has just been not just a bunch of lies, but people who really don't know what the hell they are talking about. And I think the avatar for that is Anthony Fauci. And people now are finally starting to look at him and say, you have backtracked on everything that you've said. Um, But Ben, I think tying these two together, people, uh, I mean, if you would have said five years ago, I would totally distrust, maybe not the FBI, but our intelligence agencies, the people that we trusted, you know, where we have to go to the Middle East to spread democracy. And we have, you know, the Patriot Act and everything that we were convinced was in our best interest, really, in a way, I think was just a rehearsal for using these tools against Americans. And, um, And now we see that they are heartless, cruel, inhumane people in charge of everything from our public schools up to our intelligence agencies. I mean, these are not just they're they're demonic people. They're twisted. I mean, Andrew Cuomo should be in a rubber room somewhere. He should not be in charge of one of the biggest states in our country. There's just an evilness to all of these people in charge that I think hopefully, as you said, Ben, at least half the country is recognizing. Yeah, I mean, I, I think a, a couple points that I would make are, um, first of all, you know, with respect to certain areas are supposed to be insulated from politics. No, for the left, leftism corrupts everything. And so mm-hmm. now we know to an extent we never knew before that everything has been politicized because everything is a potential apparatus of power. And it's imperative for leftism to corrupt and corrode everything because then they can use those powers and lever them against their political adversaries. Um, on the, the big tech point, in my own mind, I've thought for a while that we're going to end up in a place where we're all going to talk in code, like we're in the Soviet Union or something, and we use official language or unofficial language that to the censors looks like it's kosher, but then in reality is actually mocking them or, or subverting them. And it's really sad and scary to think that we have to be like that in America. But then again, look at this new app, Clubhouse, for example, which has exploded, where the New York Times has a tweet about how people are speaking it using unfettered words on, on Clubhouse. And at the same time, the New York Times has an article talking about how China wants to clamp down on Clubhouse because people are having open conversations. So the New York Times and China are simpatico. And I think that's a perfect <laughs> illustration of where we are in terms of the idea that essentially – Our ruling class seeks total power. They and I write a lot about China, so I obviously have maybe some myopia on this issue. But I really do believe that they've been invested in communist China's rise for decades, of course, led by none other than the big guy himself, Joe Biden. And I've written at length about that. They envy the power and control that communist China has. We are imposing our own sort of social credit system 
throughout civil society of our own volition, not because the CCP runs America, but because Americans in the ruling class believe they ought to impose their views on us. So, you know, is this all some conspiracy where slowly but surely they develop these powers and now they're going to turn them on their adversaries? I wouldn't speculate as such, but what I would say is it's clearly fallen right into their lap. They've accrued more and more power, and when they see threats to their power, they will use that power against their perceived political adversaries. And all of this ultimately comes down to the fact that they can't deal with any competition. They not, none, No one in the ruling class, the reason we are shut down on social media, and I myself got flagged for tweeting out a screenshot of part of a suit that was brought, which alleged myriad instances of fraud and intimidation in Michigan. And I got flagged for this and it ultimately redounded to the benefit of the tweet because then it went much more viral as a consequence. <laughs> but and then same thing, of course, with the language about public health issues like the coronavirus, where they shut you down. It's very clear they cannot handle any competing questions, opinions, anything that would potentially undermine the appearance of their authority. They cannot tolerate it. So there's there's a weakness that's illustrated in that. But on the other hand, they control all of these forums. And so how are we going to get around it? And that that's the question. That's the question of our lives to some extent is how are you going to get around the fact that it's not just tyrannical politicians, but it's also the tech executives and it's the people who are the executives at banks and everyone else across our society. That That's the real problem that we face. So we're going to have you know, the domestic war on terror on the one hand, but then you're also going to have in civil society people being hounded out of their workplaces and their families being threatened for wrong think. And that when we're at that point, it's not really America anymore. It's, it's a hollowed out America in name only. Okay, well, that's just a really happy note that truly <laughs> end on a happy note. And I'm being sarcastic because we do tend to spiral into pits of darkness. So Let's close with um, a question to you, Ben. Um, you know, what what steps can we take? Like, do you have any prescriptions? You know, um, what what can people do? You know, the average person, our listeners, they're not average; they're above average, of course. But um, what <laughs> what can be done? You know, what what is to be done, Ben? <laughs> yeah. Well, on the, I mean, on help the, us, Ben. <laughs> <laughs> on, on, on the narrow but actually really wide question of the coming war on domestic terror, one of the reasons I wrote the piece is because I want people, the public, for there to be an outcry in the public about this and then to force their representatives, even even tr kicking, dragging and screaming to actually ask questions about it, because if it does get exposed, I do think it could potentially fall apart. So we have power as individuals to get the knowledge out there about this, to put pressure on our purported representatives and maybe for them to do their jobs in connection with this. Um, I, I think you know, more broadly in terms of the fact that we're under assault in every single realm at the same time and the other side is, is constantly attacking, we should keep in mind that the other side was itself a very small minority in this country a century ago, was on the outs, was fringe, and they ended up taking over all the institutions. So that can be done. Clearly. Also, they are corrupt. There is incompetence. There are plenty of areas where we can poke holes in them and ultimately mm -hmm. undermine them. But more broadly, there needs to be a, a long term plan and then also short term tactics in terms of here are all the places where we're losing and failing and behind. Here are the here are the here are our strengths and our strengths, I believe, are that we have the right views ultimately. How do we make those views ultimately pervade society and what are all the way what are all the avenues or forums where we need to ultimately win and what's the plan for winning in those forums? So we need a long term strategy for dealing with our myriad weaknesses, but also the strength that half the country roughly is still reasonable and, and some of the other positives that we have recognize all the strengths of our political opponents and then and, and develop a real comprehensive long term strategy to do what they did, which is to take back the country, essentially. And, you know, what can the person doing the not so average listeners to this call and, and beyond? I, I don't really like the phrase average Americans in the first place. But yeah. the first thing is to, to, to speak boldly and courageously and without fear. And if there's one to go full circle to go back to rush, 
Rush spoke without fear, courageously, boldly. He was hated for it, but that hatred was a testament to how effective he was. And so I think if there's one takeaway or or a Devin Nunes or a President Trump, it is to be bold and courageous. I, I do think there are people who are lost cause on the other side, especially later in life. And if you haven't seen in your own life why our values and principles are the right ones to lead a flourishing life and ultimately for a country to flourish, then I think you'll never see it ultimately. Obviously, for those people who maybe can be persuaded or convinced over time, obviously work on them as hard as you can. But more importantly, speak out, speak up, speak boldly, because that courage instills courage in others. And it's imperative to have courage in a time where it feels like we're this massive minority. But in reality, there are plenty of people out there who agree with us and they're just afraid to speak up about it. And I say this as someone who's been up in New York suburbs and in New York for my entire life. So I feel it acutely. But nevertheless, I know going to other parts of the country, you see it that the conservatives are cowed into speaking huddled in corners in hushed voices. And that should not be the case in America. And we should not give sanction to the other side's intimidation by acting like that. We should be bold, courageous, and fearless. All right. Ben, you, I want you to run for office. This is some of the most well-said, articulate, uh, powerful sentiments, well, certainly that's been on happy hour with me and Liz, but that I've heard. And I hope you keep writing about this, but I also hope you just keep saying it in those terms that you just used because it's very compelling. I appreciate it. And, and don't tell my wife about that suggestion because she won't be happy. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe in a few years, maybe <laughs> down the road. But um, I, I think just to wrap, you are exactly right. And I think that that is a big takeaway from the tributes to Rush this week is that, you know, he was the original target of cancel culture. He went, I mean, obviously he passed away too young, but he went out on his terms. He was still, he still had his show even though they tried to cancel him so many times, but he didn't care. He knew who his enemies were. He knew who he was. He perfected his craft. He spoke plainly, but passionately. And I think that's, that's a legacy that, you know, those of us in the space right now really should emulate because people need it now more than ever. And none of us are here without rush is really, and I don't think that's an overstatement. He's irreplaceable. Uh, But to carry on his legacy and to fulfill what he did and ultimately to pay back the debt of gratitude that we all owe, it's incumbent upon us all to fight just as hard as he did, as smart as he did, and as cheerfully as he did it. All right. Well, on that happy note, we will end the happy hour. (laughs) Thank you so much for spending an hour listening to us. Don't forget to subscribe to us on iTunes, Happy Hour with Julie and Liz, and we will see you next week. Thanks for listening to Happy Hour with Julie and Liz. We'll see you next week.